Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our school committee meeting. We are gathering here to interview our um, superintendent finalist candidate, Dr. Peter Burroughs. Welcome, Peter, and welcome uh, to our audience, <laughs> uh, an audience at home. And uh, um, what we'll do um, starting out is we'll just go around and introduce ourselves just so you know who we all are and, and about um, you know, kids that we might have in the schools or whatever. Uh, Betty, let me start with you. I'm Betty White, and I'm a school committee member, but I'm on my sixth year. And I have one son who's grown and graduated from uh, the Milton Public Schools in 2013. My name is Anna Varghese. Uh, this is my first year on school committee. I have um, the, I have two daughters, uh, one in Pierce in sixth grade and one at the Cunningham in fifth grade. I'm Lizzie, nice to see you again. Um, I have, let's see, this is my second year on school committee, and I have two daughters as well at Tucker, one in kindergarten and one in third grade. It's nice to meet you. So Beverly Ross Denny, this is my second year on the school committee. I have three children in the Milton Public Schools. I have two at the high school, um, two sons. One's a junior, one's a freshman. And I have a third grader who's at the Tucker. And uh, Selena Miranda, nice to meet you. And I have a daughter in, uh, at the Cunningham. Uh, she's a third grader, and I'm in my first year. Great. And Ada Rosemary, I'm the chair. <clears throat> this is my sixth year also. And um, I have three kids that graduated Milton High School in 2008, 10, and 12. Um, and they're all off doing their thing now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so welcome. Happens quickly. Yeah, it does. Uh, welcome. We're glad to have you here. Um, so as you know, but I just want to sort of let our viewing audience know about um, the screening committee that preceded the work that we're doing here tonight. Um, the screening committee included 11 people um, that reviewed 19 applications uh, that were submitted to us. Uh, and the screening committee was a group that consisted of one assistant superintendent, one principal, one teacher, three school committee members, four parents representing all of the levels elementary, middle, and high, and different parts of our community. Um, and the screening committee narrowed down the applicants to a group of seven semi-finalists who were interviewed. Um, and the screening committee touched on 15 topics that were um, deemed important to the role of superintendent that were informed by focus groups that we had um, held uh, prior to the screening committee and a survey that was conducted to inform our process. Uh, we asked the same questions of every candidate, and school committee members have received that list of questions um, asked during the semifinalist round. Um, and the screening committee completed their work when they arrived at a recommendation of the three finalists to pass along to the school committee. Um, and yesterday, all of our candidates, including Dr. Burroughs, um, had the opportunity to visit our schools and talk with members of our community to learn more about Milton and Milton Public Schools. Um, and today's um, school committee interviews will be a little different. Um, each school committee member has selected questions based on what we all think are important to Milton Public Schools from our perspective as school committee members. Um, some questions may be repeated from the semifinalists round, um, and some questions may be on other topics. 
Uh, we've all had a chance to review uh, the candidates' resumes, personal statements, DEIB statements, written references, phone references. Um, and um, some of our questions may probe further on some of those items. Uh, we'll go around the table and we'll ask all, all our questions for 75 minutes that we have allocated for this interview. And we've got a clock on the table there just so you have a sense of the time. And our um, plan is that this interview should wrap up around 645. Um, so, and toward the end of the interview, we'll provide about five to ten minutes to give you a chance to ask us any questions you may have or make any final comment that you'd like to, to, to make. Um, so I'm going to just start out with questions. Um, and the uh, first question is, why Milton, why now? Um, and would you please begin our time by sharing uh, why you're seeking the superintendency here in Milton, and talk a bit about some of your key experiences in your career and your dis and um, our district that make you well suited to be the next superintendent. Great. Um, yeah. So why Milton? Why now? I, I uh, should start really far back. Um, I think I'll start back to um, graduating from uh, university and kind of when I started my career. Um, I began my career as a, as a teacher and after university spent the first 10 years overseas teaching English. Um, during that 10 year period I got a master's in ESL and um, had thought that that was what I was going to do for a long time. My experiences overseas living, living in other cultures and, and um, the kind of the impact uh, both to myself as a person in, in living outside of kind of where I grew up and, and what I knew um, was increasingly powerful in terms of, um, I felt like my work. And um, after 10 years, uh, it was starting to feel like it, it might be better to be home, to start a family. And so um, my wife and I decided that we would stop the expatriate period of our lives and, and come back. And we ended up going back to Oregon uh, where I was a high school English teacher, and within that same uh, school, I was assistant principal and principal. Uh, growing up in Connecticut, uh, before I went to Oregon for university, growing up in Connecticut, most of my family is in the Northeast. And so one of the big draws in looking at, at the time I was looking at a transition to a superintendency in Oregon um, after being a high school principal. And I thought, you know, we'd like to be closer to family. Uh, being a superintendent, as you all know, is a really big commitment, a big commitment of time. It's a commitment to the community. And so we decided to move to Vermont, which in some ways is kind of analogous to Oregon. I think people think of those two states similarly. They're, they're pretty different, but um, made the move to, to Vermont and have been there for 10 years. And after 10 years as a superintendent there, it's been a, a, an incredible experience. I'm feeling like it's time for me now to explore something a little bit more challenging, more diverse. Um, I'm more drawn to, at this point in my career, being in a, an urban or more urban environment, which is what drew me to Milton. Um, I mentioned earlier before um, we started that I also have a connection to Milton from my brother-in-law, and so I knew the community well. I know um, how they talked about Milton. I mean, they moved to Milton for the schools. I think a lot of people moved to Milton for the schools. 
Uh, and I think that shows a real commitment from community, from staff as well. Um, so that, that's what drew me to, to Milton was um, commitment to education, commitment to the right things. I spent a lot of time before applying reading through everything I could online uh, related to the strategic plan, the Cambridge quality review, um, board minutes, board video. You know, I kind of did an exhaustive uh, research just to, to better understand where I was applying. So I, I did not, and I have not applied all over um, the Boston area. I'm being more kind of targeted because I, I am really uh, excited about this community. I'm excited about what has been articulated in the strategic plan. I think um, my sense from visiting schools and talking to staff yesterday is there is a commitment on behalf of staff to really carry that forward. And it, it feels like there needs to be um, that the, the school system's in a place where there needs to be some leadership to help to bring together a lot of these kind of action plans that have been set forth that, that might need a little bit more leadership to kind of get moving and, and become coherent. So, so that's, that's kind of what drew me to this point in time right now. Okay. Thank you. All right. I could ask the next question. Um, so I'm going to ask a question about your leadership style. And I did notice that when you wrote in your personal statement, you, you talked a lot about yourself as a leader. So if I think about uh, this quote that I had from this morning, the growth and development of people is the highest calling of leadership. So I was going to give you a chance a little bit to elaborate on your growth as a leader yeah. and how you motivate others in recognizing their potential leadership skills as well. Yeah. Well, I think I've always been a collaborative leader. And uh, when I think back to, uh, you know, I started kind of entering into leadership positions in university through a number of different organizations that I was a part of. And I kind of naturally went, went to those positions. But my, my style and who I am as a leader is someone who wants to empower other people. And what that takes is both um, the ability to listen, the ability to understand, um, the desire to, to bring people together, to, to find a shared direction. Um, I think that's very different from, you know, the kind of typical top-down leadership where, you know, the leader's tasked with knowing the answer and then making sure that, you know, you get a straight line to, to you know, get to the, the outcome that you want to get to. Um, in a school system, which is highly complex, which involves so many different layers and levels, um, there are many cooks in the kitchen in public education, right? <laughs> And so it is, it, I think it's critical for any, any education leader to be able to galvanize support, to be able to engage differing viewpoints, um, to be able to speak clearly and articulately about what the leader's vision is, and, and to live by that, and to be transparent, to be open, to be honest. And even when things get tough and when you have to make hard decisions, you've got a groundswell of support with you and people understand and, and it's not just, things aren't just happening from left field. They're, they're happening because there's a culture that the leader is developing together with the entire community. Um, and I think those things are critical. So when you, when you talk about that, it, I think it's a, you know, any good leader is, is a leader who's really self-aware. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. 
Um, I would like to ask you um, about inquiry cycles. And in recent years, Milton has implemented several major initiatives to improve student academic and social emotional outcomes, but we know the work isn't done. Would you please tell us about a time when you engaged in a cycle of inquiry to learn from and build upon a major initiative that you may have started you know, multiple years before? Sure. <clears throat> so when I uh, went to, when I first got to Middlebury, Vermont, where I currently am, um, we really had no kind of strategic plan, no direction. Um, there was a real need to, to do deep inquiry to understand where we were and where we needed to go. And I knew, I mean, it was clear, and when you come into a new system, the first thing that happens as a leader is everyone comes up to you and says, this is what you need to do. And you need to do it right now, or yesterday. Um, and so I definitely got that when I got there. Um, but I, I knew that I had to take some time and listen and understand before we moved forward. I also understood that if if I talked to the smartest people in the community and they told me These, this is what you need to do and I just did it, it's not going to work because everybody else needs to be a part of that process. And so we spent, I spent a, about um, nine months with a, you know, I, I articulated an entry plan in terms of the kinds of things I was going to do in the community to let the community know how I was going to be engaging with them to better understand what the needs were and what kinds of things we needed to put forward. We then um, did a, a year-long strategic plan, which, um, you know, in, in terms of that question around the inquiry cycle, we, um, you know, instead of me as superintendent doing all this inquiry, we tasked action teams with uh, essentially engaging in, as you have in your um, strategic plan, three pillars. We also had three foundational goals that the board set, and these action teams then worked to went out essentially out into both the inner community, meaning like the school staff, and also out into the community to kind of better understand where are we and what are the, the like real key objectives that would, and action steps that would help us to get where we want to go. Um, and so that, that process took quite a, I mean it took, you know, close to two years to finish from when I got there to the completion of that plan. But that plan then led to having a real basis for all of the work that came after that. Um, one of the biggest things was uh, a movement to international baccalaureate. Uh, and we um, did a lot of work on that um, over many years. Um, it took a lot of sustained leadership in, in order to, to move through a three-year authorization process for that. Um, I could talk a lot longer about that as well in terms of, of the why, but um, getting back to your question you know, regarding inquiry, I, I think it's really critical that any, any kind of direction that, that a school system takes has to include that inquiry cycle throughout, that we have to keep coming back and monitoring and making sure that where we thought we were going is where we were going. They're also invariably, when you make a three-year or five-year plan, you, you can't know what's going to happen in two years or three years that will change and shift, shift what you thought was some static reality. And so it's really important also that there's, there's a lot of tending that's involved in, in sustaining the vision. 
And I think the, the more that, that staff and community are connected to that vision, the more possible it is for that to be realized. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, thank you for that. And um, so I'm going to um, actually ask a question that I asked this morning, but I'm going to tweak it a little bit because I've been hearing uh, from folks, and I want to make sure that their voices uh, get heard. And so, um, you know, Milton, as you know, you've noted, is definitely um, a diverse community in terms of uh, definitely, uh, you know, income, uh, cultural, and uh, racial. Uh, yeah. You know, we definitely would have that diversity, and I think it's much more diverse than other uh, suburbs in the area, for sure. Um, but we have sort of a number of students, BIPOC students, mostly uh, black students, who haven't felt necessarily a sense of belonging, and um, families have made the tough decisions to perhaps pursue uh, private education because, you know, in search of that sense of belonging. Uh, we also have a growing population, I think, of more visibly, I don't think it's a new thing, but visibly transgender students. Um, we also have, um, because of the cultural diversity, different, you know, celebrations and et cetera. And in fact, I myself this year had to, um, well, not myself, my husband did, but reached out to the superintendent and said, hey, we haven't seen anything around Latinx history month. You know, we see the others, but we don't see that. And my daughter is half black, half Latina. And so that's important uh, because we talk about it at home. Yeah, yeah. So there is sort of this need for us to think about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Mm -hmm. So when you hear sort of, yes, you know, Milton is great and we're doing wonderful work. I think we've made progress in the right direction. But there's still a ways for us to go. So if you could speak to how you would sort of address some of the issues um, that we remain, we have, we're still seeing here in the district, and, or strategies perhaps that you've uh, you know, applied elsewhere yeah. that you might bring uh, here, and some of the challenges, especially with those voices that will pin the DEBI efforts against academic excellence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's somehow talked about in this like either or, which is, doesn't incorrect. make any sense. Um, yeah, so uh, there's so much to say. Um, you know, I've, I've read through a lot of the, the DIB and, and um, DEI work that has been done already in, um, you know, the, the research that's been done. I mentioned the, the quality review. Um, and there's a lot of, I think, great uh, kind of direction for the district that's contained in, in that report talking about um, making sure that equity is not something that's done on the side, that it's, it, it's a lens through which you know, all of the work is done. Um, looking at the um, partnerships that, I know it mentioned the uh, community partnerships that have been strong in some ways, but haven't, people don't feel like, it, my sense is that there's a feeling of disconnect between what's happening in schools around DEI and what, where, how the community either wants to be involved with it or um, the projected outcomes of that work. So I, I think, you know, looking at disproportionality, looking at um, all of the, the kind of issues, there has to be, I think, first and foremost, an understanding of, of kind of where we are. And I, and I think given where we are in 2023 and what we've just been through over the last three years, 
there's a lot of dissonance. So it, 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 I think it's really important that we, we can get to a, a real understanding of just kind of where we are. And I think that that review did a great job of, of trying to lay out here's where, where Milton is in terms of the data. So I think that piece is important. I think uh, another really critical piece of this is the, the development of the culture of inclusiveness and, and what that looks like and what does that mean for every individual both within the school system and what does that mean for the community. And in my experience oftentimes the, there are groups in the community that, that interact with the school system but oftentimes it feels like it's, it's siloed. And I think for this transformation to really happen, to get to, to real change, it has to be beyond these silos of people that feel strongly about it to everybody has to carry this. It can't be carried by a few people. The, um, you know, thinking about the, the disproportionality and, and looking at where the numbers are, and I know one of the things that I, I read about was that the um, looking at outcomes versus looking at representation was a, another really critical piece that can't just look at having you know the the um, number of students taking AP exams, for example, versus how they're what the outcomes are for those exams. So I think. There are lots of, of, of kind of pieces of this. I, I, I really feel like this, this doesn't change. Like you don't change and, and really move DEI work if it's one person, whether it's the superintendent or the school board or school committee, whoever it is, it's, it, it has to be a complete and total community um, effort. And we have to be listening to students as we're, we're doing this. Student voice is, is another piece that is, is really, really critical to, you know, you were mentioning um, families that have reached out to you or your own kids who have, have talked to you about their own experiences. And students, if we can elevate student voice through this, and, you know, in my experience, adults really listen to students in a way that they don't listen to other adults. And, and being able to elevate their voices as we're, we're looking at things that we need to change. We look at systemic realities that are, you know, people are like, well, that's fine, that's good, let's keep, keep it that way, that we need to push against and change. Um, we need to do that. But we need to, we need to do it together, and we need to... Um, the together piece is, is the biggest challenge. And that's where, you know, as superintendent, it, it's, I, I feel absolutely committed to, to this work. That is the work, is serving all students and making sure every student is feeling safe, is feeling successful. Um, but I also see that I need to do everything in, in, I can in this position to be able to engage our entire community to do the work that needs to happen. And it, it doesn't happen in a week, right? Th this, is, this is undoing a lot that has, that has been constructed over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So there's, I mean, I think it goes without saying that there has to be a, a absolute commitment to it.
Could you um, share examples of how you've provided high-achieving students the support they've needed to stay engaged in learning? And then could you also talk about supporting students who are grade levels behind and also our students in special education? Sure. Um, I, I think in, in kind of the, the gamut of, of high-achieving and students that need more um, support that it it's not creating two separate systems. And I think traditionally when you look at, at education, the, the education that we all probably experienced, um, there are kind of two, two kind of tracks, right? And we've been over the last, I would say probably 20 years in education trying to deconstruct those tracks because they're damaging in, in a lot of ways. So, the, the, the challenge, and I think the, the really important piece of this, and, and my own beliefs about this, is we have to, the bar has to be high for everyone, and the supports have to be there for students that, that need more support to get there. But we don't start to shift and change outcomes based on identification or based on, um, you know, essentially tracking. The, the challenge, in my experience, with students that aren't engaged in school, it's not that they're not bright, it's not that they don't have the same abilities as other kids, it's just that they don't care. They don't, they don't see the, the meaning behind what they're studying. And unfortunately, as you, if you look at what plays out across the country uh, with data, you know, students that come from families with strong educational backgrounds and, and support and financially stable homes will tend to do better um, statistically. And so schools as a whole need to be doing more. It, it, it's, our, our job is no longer to get up at the chalkboard, whiteboard, now smartboard, or even past smartboard at this point. But. Um, you get the metaphor. Um, but it's, we're, we're no longer just providing a service, right? Like, we are a social good. We are a social... We are, we are helping to sustain and support students well beyond their, their academics. And I know um, Milton has done a lot of work on SEL, um, and it's one of the pillars, safe and supportive schools, where an SEL kind of comes underneath that. That, that has to be a, a, an integral part of making sure that students are, are achieving, is making sure that there's a focus on the whole child as opposed to just one piece of it. Um, another part, I think, is, is um, and I know this is you know, in the context of Milton and um, the fact that there's a number of private school opportunities, and you mentioned um, private school earlier in terms of uh, what happens, and I'd heard that prior to, to coming, that that was one of the things that um, had been in conversation um, at the committee level and, and obviously at the community level too. I, I think this, this also falls to communication. I know I mentioned this earlier. Um, I, I think it's really, really critical that the superintendent and the central office, I mean, it's really everybody, but that, that there is there's greater communication happening about the great things that are happening um, and really listening and hearing. So if, if there are things that the school system isn't providing, 
And of course, a, a public school setting and a private school setting are different and will always be different, right? Um, but I think being attuned to what, what are the things that are, you know, if parents are, are coming forward and saying, well, you know, we really like this, you know, we love the elementary experience, but we didn't like this about middle school or, or something about high school or whatever the, the issue might be, that if, if we're listening, Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is so classic. Somebody's still sitting up somewhere. Oh, God. The alarm was set for six o'clock. Sorry. <laughs> All right. I hit a button in my bag. Sorry. Never done that before. It's <laughs> fine. It's fine. Um, so I, was, I think I was saying, you know, listening and understanding and investigating where the, the school system might be falling short is really important. And then figuring out, is that something that we can fix? Is that something that we can work towards? Is that, and, and sometimes I think it's a communication issue. Sometimes it might be a systems issue. Um, a lot of times with this kind of thing, I think it's a perception issue too. And so that, it, it's important to engage in that conversation and, and understand if it's a perception issue, you know what's at the root of that, and how do how do we how do we communicate in a way that we can help to to shine more light on what's actually happening and and where the strengths really are. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So communication was actually one of the things that I was going to ask you about. Okay. Um, but and I'd like to add like two other topics because sure. I think these are things that persistently come up um, in our conversations. I heard them in the focus groups and all the kind of um... discussion leading up to this process. Um, so you were just really, I think, laying out like a, a vision or a philosophy around communication. I'm wondering if you could also provide like an uh, example of an, a way that you've approached communication as superintendent where you kind of applied some of what you were just sharing. Um, so that's the first thing would be the communication, and then there are kind of two other priorities that I'd like you to also share examples around um, change management. Like I know you've been involved in your role mm -hmm. in leading your district through a number of um, pretty big changes. Like how do you approach that? Because that is a need we have in our next superintendent here with around the strategic plan that you've spoken to. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the second thing, change management. Okay. And then the third thing is just I think something we need to name, it's kind of been in the space alluded to, is our racial achievement and opportunity gaps here, um, and the fact that we need to eliminate those gaps. So do you also have um, sort of relevant experience from your district that would lead you to try different strategies on that piece? Um, yeah, I mean, I think my theory of action around communication is, um, I think it has to be broad. So I, I don't think it falls to one person. Um, I've done many, many different, in, in terms of application and experience, I've done lots of different kinds of communication as a superintendent and as a principal um, as well. Uh, I found that uh, differentiating communication between staff and community is important. I think there's a different tone that you use with staff. Um, there are different things you talk about with staff, so I, I tend to write 
you know, I have a kind of a monthly thing that I send to staff um, and also do um, kind of listening tours and visits with staff yearly to check in and listen and, you know, kind of like in, a, in an open kind of way, um, just be present. And when, when you hold the title of superintendent, sometimes it carries with it, you know, people say, oh, it's the superintendent, like, and there's this distancing that happens. Um, I think it's really important, and my own um, bias and belief is that it's really important to be kind of like, I, I don't carry the title as being any different than anyone else, and I feel strongly about that. I think the title carries a lot of responsibility, um, but I want people to feel like they can come and talk to me. I want them to feel like I'm, I'm here, I'm listening, and I'm fully present, and there's no kind of like differentiation you know, between us in terms of we're, we're kind of two people trying to, to kind of make things better. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's, you know, I guess I would say it's multimodal in terms of communication. Okay. Uh, I do think we're in the day and age where having a communications director or coordinator is, is pretty important given just how quickly things happen. Um, given the fact that one person in this job doesn't have enough time to really do all of the communication that needs to happen, you know, pushing things out to social media, like all those different things that are, are I think, more critical now than they were 10 years ago. Um, and when you don't have your, you know, you, when you're not set on communication and things happen, you don't communicate quick enough, you know what happens, right? Like, things grow and mushroom. It takes, you know, like 20 minutes on Facebook for something to just all of a sudden be like <laughs> this like giant thing that you can't, that you can't contain anymore. So that, that part of, of communication, that, that's something that I learned over my tenure as a superintendent is I, I did hire a communications director and am now, uh, I think we're in a much better position with, with that position. Um, in, in engaging families and getting out information in a way that is kind of more um, kind of palatable and, and direct. Um, I mean, if you look at most school, public school communication historically has been pretty bad. If you compare it to like businesses or, I mean, that's my experience. Websites, you know, you go on a, a school website and it's like, you know, crawling through trying to find stuff. So, I, I mean, I, I approach our communication, I try to approach our communication as a, it's a real priority because I think every, people need to be engaged and they need to understand and the more people are with schools, the better it is for our students. Um, the second thing... Change management. What's that? Change management. Change management, yeah. Uh, some of that, I think, goes back to being sure that, that you're really clearly articulating process with people. I found that I'm someone who definitely thinks sequentially and thinks about how we get from here to here, but I, I also try to work in, in terms of that process orientation, really working in how are people becoming involved along the way and being sure that everybody understands how decisions are being made so that once once we've made the leap, we've made a decision, 
that people then don't come back and say, well, what happened? I didn't, how did, I, I never heard about this. No one said anything. And now we've decided to build a new middle school. Mm-hmm. What happened? Uh, so so it's, it, I think it's really important with change management that you're thinking about everybody, that you're thinking about process, and, and you're also keeping people along that, that timeline. I've seen a lot of change management get lost in um, special interest, you know, where people start saying, let's, let's go in this direction, and they start moving in that direction, and then someone comes in and, and it starts to move kind of left or move right, and, and you don't quite ever get there. And I think to get there take, takes both that, that kind of process orientation, but it also takes the ability to step back and to see the system as a whole to understand all of those different pieces and parts, um, which is something that I've kind of reflected on in, in terms of Milton is I, I think it is kind of ripe for someone to come in and step back and look at all of this work that's happened and, and help to, in that same kind of change management way, help to like figure out like what are the real key next steps? How is everybody aware of what those next steps are? How are we communicating them? And then just the last part was around the um, racial achievement gaps. And you know, this is, as you mentioned earlier, around the sense of belonging with DEIB work. Um, it's, you know, these are long-term systemic challenges, but um, you know, it's clear that we need to make progress here, uh, faster-paced progress on this issue. So yeah. do you have... Um, experience either in your school or district leadership around essentially moving the needle on that type of work? So um, actually when I was a principal in Oregon, I, um, in my first year, I created a group called the, um, our school is called Willamette High School, uh, called the Willamette Improvement Team. And one of the things that we did together, it was, I, it was a course that students took with me as principal. Um, and it was predominantly students of color and they essentially were kind of like my means of understanding kind of like where they were struggling both in terms of culture and experience and also in terms of academics and I think you know it because I think you mentioned that this is so complex and and you know making faster you know the progress as fast as we can. Mm-hmm. Has, you have to be looking at all of these different kind of layers. It's not um, bringing in one new academic program and expecting that to change things, right? Because we're talking about social issues, we're talking about systemic issues within how we operate. So, so part of part of like going fast with this is is I think going back to what we talked about earlier, um, which is understanding. One, really understanding where we are and understanding what are the strongest levers that we can pull, you know, based on, you know, lots of people are doing this work around, all, throughout the country. Mm-hmm. So based on, on what is proven to work, you know, and there have been so many recommendations that have already been articulated for Milton to follow. I'm not sure, I mean, I can't tell from the documentation which ones are engaged, at what level they're engaged, Right, like that's that's unclear. Um, 
So I think that's, that's one of the first steps is just figuring out, okay, of these high leverage actions, which ones are engaged, which ones are just kind of like were stated, but they're still just on paper. Mm-hmm. And I know in, in reading through the, the survey um, notes um, for the hiring process, I did see a number of community members talking about that too, saying that we spent a lot of time talking about the opportunity gap when are we going to take action? Right. And so, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't know that yet, just from from my vantage point. But I think that would be one of the first things to do would be to to really understand, like, of those leverage points, which ones are are moving, which ones are not, and then it it has to be part of the the whole system. So it can't, this work can't be done over here on the side, as like, you know, all the other work of the school system is happening here. It has to be, it has to be integrated. Um, I've got a question about um, <coughs> coming to Massachusetts yeah. um, and, and Massachusetts education laws and, and, and that whole system in which we operate. And I'm just wondering how comfortable or knowledgeable you feel about the requirements of mass um, education laws and, and steps that we might need to take to implement those laws and grant opportunities. Um, things like Proposition Two and a Half overrides that, that communities need to do for more funding and the like. So, just wonder if you could. Yeah. Say so that. some of these things have already come up, and I've already learned them. I mean, I made the transition from Oregon, so I, I knew or- the Oregon system well and learned the Vermont system pretty quickly. So I, I feel confident that I would be able to learn the ins and outs of of what's different in Massachusetts. There's a lot that's the same too in terms of um, you know the superintendent role. There's definitely state legislation that differs that, um, you know, I would obviously be learning. Um, I have made contact with Tom Scott, who is, I don't know if you know who he is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've talked to him about, you know, kind of like what would be helpful for a superintendent coming into Massachusetts, and he gave me a bunch of resources. That's great. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm a, I feel like I'm a quick study, and... Um, we do a lot of research to, to understand, you know, how things operate here. Um, I'm not afraid of calling people and making connections and, and you know, if, if I'm in, if in doubt or not understand something, would, would certainly reach out and, and figure that out. Um, and I think part of, part of understanding, uh, you know, the, the laws, the new, new community and everything else is, is that kind of communication piece of working with town, town officials and, um, developing relationships with them to to work together. I know that's a, a, a big piece of budget development here is having a really strong connection with the town. And so that would definitely be a priority in terms of uh, being sure that understood where, where things needed to be and, and was doing what needed to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have town meetings in Vermont? We do, yeah. Yeah, so we do too here. So. They're pretty raucous sometimes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They are, yeah. And we have it's... representative town meeting. I don't know if, if Vermont has every, whoever shows up. Um, but, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, representative. At least they're elected um, uh, representatives. But, um, but it is, it's part of... Oh, it's a huge... Yeah. Of getting yeah. a budget passed. Yeah. But it's, it's very... I, I think there are a lot of similarities, honestly, between Massachusetts and Vermont. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, my mother lives on the vineyard 
um, was a teacher there for a long time. And so I also know the system just from her as a, a former educator. Mm-hmm. Great. Great, thank you. Yeah. So I was going to ask you a little bit about um, teacher recruitment and staff recruitment. And certainly, yeah. I think yeah. post-pandemic, a lot of people have left the profession feeling like they couldn't do it anymore. We're feeling burnt out. Um, so I was going to ask you to talk about how do we recruit staff, how do we retain staff, and also the dilemma of trying to recruit staff who are culturally diverse, racially diverse, that represent yeah. our students who need that role model in the classroom and that connection. I mean, I know we've made efforts, but I think it's also not unique to Milton. I think lots of districts. Disproportionate, right? Yes. More Tucker than the other schools from mm-hmm. what I can mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your thoughts about how to try to reach, you know, reach out and um, recruit staff. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things that that was really exciting yesterday was just the level of energy that I felt staff had and um, just given what they've been through over the last number of years and to see uh, you know I, they, a lot of them came up to introduce themselves and it felt like there was they have they definitely seemed more refreshed than I thought they would be so that was really a, a, a huge positive I think I think the staff here are really strong and you know, talking with um, other people in Boston and other superintendents in Boston, um, they've shared that they have significant staffing shortages that I don't think Milton is facing. Which, yeah, it's definitely a knocking on wood because it's um, a national crisis, right? In, mm-hmm. in terms of staffing, I think the a couple things are really important. One, if, if staff are feeling supported and heard that goes a billion miles so talking again about culture and about what the staff culture is if, if staff are coming to 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 their to their work and they're feeling fulfilled if they're feeling like it's doable if they're feeling like there's a clear direction if they're feeling like there's um, there's time to kind of balance between the work in the classroom and professional development. Uh, in some systems, I've experienced staff feeling fatigue from a lot of central office direction. So when central office comes in, has a meeting, everything's really clear at the central office because you're not in the building and you're not teaching students. So you get this like objective view. But one of the challenges of that objective view is that it also creates blind spots in terms of you kind of, even if you were in the classroom, you forget what it was like to be in the classroom. So I think one of the things that's important, I mean, I've heard this in like four or five states. Um, I'm also on a, a delegate for Vermont for AASA, so I talk to superintendents across the country. And um, simplicity and like cl- clear direction and simplicity is really important. And I think especially after what people have been through with the pandemic, I think that that's important. I did hear that yesterday from, from some staff members that they sometimes feel like there, there are lots of different initiatives coming at them and they want to like slow down and just like do the things that are important. So that, and I think that falls to like the superintendent and central office to be sure that you're monitoring and managing that. So I think that's one piece of staff retention. Um, one, pe- one piece of staff retention and, and um, 
obviously is, is financial too. So looking at comparables, and I did see some comparables. I can't remember where, but. Yeah, probably a school committee presentation okay. or a budget presentation. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. So I, I think that that's important. Um, but people will move. I mean, I talked to someone, uh, I can't remember if it was last week, but they were saying that uh, educators in Boston um, come to Milton and stay in Milton, even though Boston pays more, I think at some levels. So it, you know how, how the salary works, the grid works. So maybe like they were saying a beginning teacher makes more in Boston, but some of those teachers were coming to Milton because they wanted to be in Milton. So I, I think that that piece is really important. So the financial piece is important, but also, again, creating that culture. Um, and then I think there's the obvious needing to go out. I talked about a communications director earlier, um, going out and being sure that you're being aggressive around um, recruitment and that you are able to articulate what, what makes Mil Milton different than other districts. So that first question in this interview, why Milton? You should be able to answer that to someone who's trying to pick between, you know, increasingly, you know, before they had two options, now they have six. Yep. So this one's got to stand out in a different way than the other five. So my question is, and, uh, oh, go can ahead. I just finish your oh, sure, yeah. one? Sorry. Okay. Um, okay. And then the, the part about, um, you know, attracting um, staff of color, I think is something that has to, there has to be a, a strong plan behind. Um, it, it can't just be like a hope and a prayer and let's, you know, it might happen. There has to be an actual plan to make that happen. So that I think oftentimes means communicating with, um, I mean, Boston's a wonderful place to make connections with higher ed. Um, that's where I would start is talking with teacher ed programs and creating a pipeline between teacher ed programs and, and Milton. So I, I think not just teacher ed, but I think there are lots of other ways that you could, could go about, um, again, uh, making those connections to, to, to bring more folks here. Yeah. Yeah. So every, just building off of this, every organization is comprised of staff, the range of capabilities. You might have more tenured staff or high achieving staff, and you have people that might be at the earlier part of their careers or just in general need support. Can you give examples, whether it's ideally at the teaching level, but even at central office, how you've prepared high achievers for growth, how you've supported a staff member that might have need a performance improvement plan, and for people for whom you know, this may not be the right career, how did you support their transition? Great questions. Uh, I have, I mean, I have so much experience with this because in my role, both as a principal and as a superintendent, I, this is a big part of the work. Um, I guess speaking to the, the high-performing employees and keeping them engaged, I think it falls back to the, the mission of the, of the system as a whole and being sure that their, their fulfillment um, you know, and everyone gets something different, right, from the work in terms of like what they need. Um, but making sure that the 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 um, I guess the vision of the of the school system is strong enough that it's carrying them, and they're excited to be a part of it. 
So it's developing kind of that team almost. I mean, I see when, when staff members are excited to come to work, they're excited about being part of a team. They're excited about what the mission is. They know why they're doing the work. They're, they're feeling sustained by the work. So I think that part is really important. In terms of the evaluation, are you talking about actual evaluation or? Oh, so if anything, it's a, if you know, I had an employee who was an assistant principal that was struggling and this is what I did. Okay. So specific examples sure. in each one of those sure. categories. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, there, every year there are a number of, of uh, employees that I'm working with on, on this kind of thing. What I have found uh, is a, a kind of Socratic approach is really helpful in, um, and probably before even talking about a Socratic approach, caring is actually the most important thing. And when I sit down with someone and I'm talking with them and they can feel that I actually care about them and about what they're doing, that in and of itself is more important than anything. So I will say that that piece, I think, is critical when you're working with someone else. And we all know that we are our own worst enemies, right? In terms of self-judgment, self-doubt, like it's really hard when you're being evaluated to be present in that sometimes. And so that, that piece, I think, is critical. Um, in, in working directly with people, it's, it's um, I mentioned the, uh, some kind of Socratic approach. It's really kind of like asking questions and helping, helping the employee to understand what either what I'm seeing, what other people are seeing, um, that they may not be seeing. And oftentimes it's surprising. You, you would think, okay, like this employee knows that they're doing X, Y, and Z. And oftentimes they don't. Um, it's a blind spot. It's something that they don't see. So engaging them in a conversation of inquiry and exploration on that has been really profound. It's actually some of the work I, I really enjoy is, is helping employees to, you know, improve and it's often through self-reflection helping them to be kind of stronger self-reflectors so that they are able to to be um, better at whatever they're doing whatever their position is and some of those you know some as as you know some of those conversations can be challenging right like you have to call out things that are really hard and and you know for some people if you know they're doing something and it's not going well and, and things aren't improving then you know obviously there's um, you know, action has to be taken um, but it's always better if the employee is understanding that and and you know ultimately um, in my experience when you can be clear and articulate and help them to really kind of like see what it is then change actually can happen the challenge is that there's never enough time because the work pulls you in a thousand different directions. I think this is true for principals too. Um, you know, in a lot of school districts across the country, supervision evaluation becomes somewhat perfunctory because there isn't enough time to do it well and sit down with people and really talk about, you know, really talk about the work. Um, we're actually in the process now of, of redesigning our 
supervision evaluation system to try to make it so that there is more like real interface between um, both peer-to-peer -peer and between um, administration and staff. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Sure, um, thank you. Um, so we are in this very interesting point in time, and I think um, it is easy to get lost in the fact that it's not unique, a unique experience in Milton yeah. that we have seen learning loss. Yeah. It's across. It's statistically, it's across. like a grade level or so. Correct, from, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's not, and again, it's not unique to us, but it's easy for us to get sort of, I think, to zone in and just focus on, on the experience close, close up. Yeah. So it's a broader issue, right? That, that's what's going on. We have unfinished learning. We have to recover, right, gains that had been made. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, we need to continue to address the racial disparities and uh, also our inability to meet the needs of our students with disabilities in the best way possible, right? So there is a lot for us to, that we had to do anyway, right? That yeah, yeah. we needed to continue to work on. But there's also this reality that we were hit with a pandemic. Mm -hmm. We hadn't been through this before. And here we are, right? Now seeing the results of that. And in your conversations, you're a seasoned superintendent, you've been doing this for a while, and in your sort of conversations across the country, just wondering sort of what, how, how do we approach this? How do we begin to recover in a way that is realistic, that understands the need of our educators, and also continues to meet the moment that we're living right now that says we can't carry on as, as we were before, yeah. and we need to pay attention to differences. We need to think about belonging and taking care of our young people. So it's just a very particular moment. Mm -hmm. So I'm just wondering, just yeah. to, to Milton specific, but also in general, how do districts and communities begin to rally around the work that we need to do to be able to continue to make progress for our students? Well, I, I think it's a, it's a huge opportunity right now. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I think this is a good time to be bringing on a new leader. Um, the pandemic, you know, I, I read post-pandemic the other day, so I think it's done. <laughs> Everyone was scared about saying that. I'm not sure it's done, but um, people are, are writing post-pandemic at, at least. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think taking this moment and stepping back and you know, people talked about during the pandemic that education was going to be totally different starting now, pretty much. I mean, I, I had so many conversations, and I'm sure all of you have too, like when, when education stopped and everyone was hunkered down at home waiting to see what would happen, people started to realize, like, we don't actually have to come back and do all this the same again. And I, I do think that there's an opportunity for us at this moment in time to rethink some of the things that we've done for decades and decades that are part of what has gotten us to where we are, which is some things are working really well and some things continually aren't. So I think, I think this point in time is an opportunity and it's, it's fighting the desire for, I think, most people to get back to normal. And normal for a lot of people means getting back to what they were doing before. 
because that's comfortable, right? It's like kind of what we've been conditioned um, to do. So I, I think as a, in, in grasping this moment in time when, you know, we're, we're kind of like in this recovery phase, there's, I assume most of the ARP funds are now spent, right? I mean, in the next, in the next budget cycle. So, you know, all the federal monies are going away. Um, I, I think this is now the time to, you know, we, we talked earlier about the, the DEI work that needs to happen. We talked about the um, work that needs to happen around communication. So this is the time to take all of those pieces and create a cohesive vision of where Milton needs to go. And I think it's not the time to try to like go really fast on one thing or one thing or one thing without people, everybody understanding like, this is, this is where we are. These are the things that we, we need to commit to, and here's how we're going to get there. Um, so I think it's like a, I think it's a, a really exciting time. Um, a lot of the money, you know, a lot of that art money has gone to interventionists and, um, you know, like other support personnel. I think in most districts have spent money to to try to kind of bring. Um, you know, some of the, the learning loss back, giving students additional time with like reading and math and, and, you know, like just trying to like infuse with more people to try to, to, to support increased achievement. But um, that wasn't ever really, I think in most systems I've seen, that's, that wasn't a systems approach. It was more of a like, let's get some people in there to try to, to, try to help, almost like emergency people going in and, and doing treatment. But what, what I think is going to really make the impact is going to be looking at you know, these issues that, and these objectives that have been articulated by all of you and by all of the, the community and by staff and creating a, a really strong plan to make things happen. I know, we're, are you asking a budget-related question? No, but you can. No, well, I just... I know we maybe only have time for a couple more questions, so maybe you ask your question, but then I'm hoping, because you were just mentioning ARPA and ESSER. I had a budget question, but I can. Okay, so can, can we fit that in after Anna's question, if we have got time? got 10 minutes left total, okay. so. And I'll just be in my car so you can keep <laughs> <laughs> um, Could you please outline the process by which you led your current district to uh, become the ninth international baccalaureate world district in the country and the challenges you overcame successfully? Sure. Um, so I talked a little bit about the lead up to the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. And um, it was clear when I, when I got to ACSD um, back then it was ACSU, so we had um, a number of, uh, the governance structure changed while I was there. Uh, we, as we started that strategic plan and, and started to look at, and it was kind of clear to me in like January or February of that year of building the plan that we needed to do more around helping our students understand the world that they were going out into and as a community that's, you know, we're like 91% white, students do not have the context for, you know, most students leave Vermont. So Vermont doesn't keep um, a lot of their, the 
the students who graduate. The, a, lot, a lot of uh, people will come back eventually, but oftentimes in their 20s and 30s and then maybe never, um, you know, population of Vermont has been dropping for some time. So it, it was clear to me, like, in terms of my own values around what I think is important for students to experience, that something like International Baccalaureate, and I, I didn't come in with that, like, we're going to do this. You know, I, I, I shared my values alongside all of our, you know, all of our staff and community and said, like, these are the things that we've articulated are important to us. Is this a vehicle by which that we could, we could get there? And so we spent, um, you know, to get everybody involved, so it wasn't just something that was my idea that I was carrying. Uh, we, had, uh, we had groups go and start to do research on International Baccalaureate and went to, um, went to visit some schools, traveled to um, a school in Massachusetts, um, had someone come to Middlebury to talk about it. Uh, we went to some conferences in different places. So we, we did a full, like, a long like, year and a half of study to determine, is this, is this the direction that we want to go? And, um, and what was really appealing about it were, I think, some of the things that you've, you've articulated in your three pillars was the you know, personalized learning and making learning meaningful to the student. Uh, in the IB context, students drive a lot of their own learning, um, and they do units of inquiry. Um, that's how the, the class is structured, at least in the primary years program. Um, it changes as it goes up through the, the grade levels. Um, but the, the, it was really powerful to work together with everybody, and that was part of the change management question too, uh, keeping everybody focused on what the values and what, the, what our objectives are in terms of what do we want for our students. You know, and I, you've probably heard of Simon Sinek, the, the why. That's like this really famous leadership um, YouTube video that everyone seems to know. Um, but I think it kind of just kind of rings true in that, like, people really need to understand the why to, to be engaged. And that, that was, as I think about our process leading up to deciding, yes, we want to do this, and then we brought it to our, our board, and we had this really big kind of, research, IB research team who had gone and done all the research and they came forward and presented. I mean, it was a beautiful moment because, not because the accomplishment of it, but because of how it happened and the fact that people were really engaged and were, people were feeling that why. And I think that is critical in, in any kind of you know, move you're gonna make to, to shift and change something. Great, thank you. Yeah. So budget. Um, the town of Milton. Good stuff. I know, right? <laughs> okay, hit it hard. In three minutes. <laughs> this is the easiest question you're going to get. No. Probably, yeah. um, Milton has a structural deficit, and it limits our ability to fund services and supports that we require. And it's more than just the schools. This is in the town. Um, we've been using ARPA money, just like everyone else. In order to address this in the short term, we would likely need to raise residential taxes because we don't have a commercial base and we don't have nonprofits that are equally um, providing um, revenue. What approach would you take to convince local um, taxpayers that the public schools are worth the investment? So, it, I mean, I think it, 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 is, um, I, it goes back to, I think, a few things that I've already said related to 
helping the community to understand what the schools are, what they do, um, and communicating. And, and I think expecting, because it's a big hit to people's purses, to expect them to support something without understanding it, I think, uh, you know, it, it's obvious that they won't, they won't support that. So I, I think the, the work I mentioned earlier around you know, marketing is kind of more of a private term, right? Like schools don't really talk about marketing, but they probably should, right? There, there's a lot of marketing that needs to happen to to help the community understand, you know, what's happening in schools, where where are the challenges? I I know in talking to staff yesterday that the the issues around school space and and enrollment and crowding are real, and people are feeling it and are are frustrated by it. Um, so I, I think the more uh, the way to like engender that support is through understanding, through helping people see both, you know, what schools are doing, what impact schools are making in terms of the lives of students and the life of the community. I think a lot of times, you know, people think, well, you know, when I have kids in school, I care, and when I don't have kids in school anymore, I don't care. And I think. I think there are lots of people out there that, that do care, regardless, and I think helping people to understand that schools are a community asset. They're not an asset just for parents. And I think it's, it's probably, you know, in this area too, really, really important to be closely connected to um, the town and to, you know, all the different people in town that are, are kind of working to help move these kinds of big rocks that um, we'll get to, you know, you're probably talking about an override, right? And I know from talking to other Massachusetts superintendents that in some communities, they'll do an override every couple of years and the community will support it. In other places, there's like this real like, whoa. <laughs> so, I don't know. I don't know what the response is here, but a little bit of both. Okay. <laughs> I like the movement, though. I was like, that was yeah. visual. <laughs> well, I, we're we're coming coming time to to wrap up here, but I just want to um, offer you an opportunity. Yeah. To you know, if there's anything else that you'd like to tell us about your candidacy or yourself uh, before we wrap up. Yeah, I mean, I had a bunch of questions, but I don't think I have time. So yeah, I can, unfortunately, I think yeah, yeah. yeah. we would have time. That's to fine. Respond. That's fine. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I just I um, you know I left yesterday the school visits feeling really really excited and felt like I made a lot of connections with people and and could kind of see myself here. So. Uh, did want to share that, uh, you know? I think, given my my background, where I am in my career, I think where I want to go. I think this feels like a really good fit for, um, I think, both my strengths and what Milton needs, and also, um, you know, want to make a my next kind of long term commitment somewhere. This feels like a good place to land. So, um, happy to talk further about anything, and um, just really excited to be. Here with you today, and and hope to continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So so we will be deliberating.
um, and making a decision in an open session on Friday morning at 7.30 on Zoom. Um, I will send you the link if you're interested in watching. I think I saw it. Watching. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. Um, it's out there. Um, yeah. uh, so we hope to make an offer subject to contract negotiations to yeah. one of our finalists on Friday. Um, but I just want to take this opportunity to just thank you for yeah. coming and sharing your background, your experience, and, and your ideas about what, what you see. Um, Milton might be, do next, and, and yeah. it's a very exciting yeah. time for yeah. us to think about having a new leader here. And, and um, you know, we really appreciate your your coming and yeah, and well, it's been it's been us. awesome. So mm -hmm. thank you all so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Have a safe trip. Well, I will. Using rain, but I think we'll be okay. Oh, really? Oh, dear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> wake up in the morning to call school, though. Yeah. So you oh, get luck. your coat over. Don't forget your jacket. You get your coat over. I need my jacket. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to just walk you out. Okay. And uh, um, if the Milton Access team can bring us down into recess, we'll take a recess briefly. Okay. There we go. <laughs>